Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. I'm going to ask all of you to stand up and we are going to say the Apostles' Creed together. And because I know all of you memorized it already, I'm not going to put it on... Okay, never mind. I'll put it up on the screens. But let's read it together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can be seated again. The Apostles' Creed, which is what we just recited, is the oldest creed. It's the oldest description of Orthodox belief that we know of. Now, we're pretty sure that others were written before it, but this is the one that we still have. In fact, there are four what are called Catholic creeds. And these are creeds that are not necessarily because they are the Catholic Church that we know of today, the Roman Catholic Church, but they are the Catholic Church in the sense that it's universal. It was before there was a Catholic and Orthodox and Protestant kind of church. And that's why in this line right here, you won't go to hell for having read it because the Catholic C is small and the church is big. Did you get that? Yeah, okay. No one got that. Never mind. Uh, but these, uh, these four Catholic creeds are the Apostles' Creed, the, Ani- the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, and the one that for some reason I didn't write down. Um, the other one. Whew, boy, that's embarrassing. Uh, and we just read the one that is the most famous. It's the one that uh, many church traditions recite, if not on a weekly basis, at least on a periodic basis. And so it's one that unites the Roman Catholic Church, the various Orthodox churches, and many of the Protestant churches of which we are one. But some of you who come from a different church background than a Baptist one will have noticed something significantly missing. Did anybody notice anything missing? Okay, We are here to talk about why that's missing here. Many of you will notice that between the phrases was crucified, dead, and buried, and the phrase, the third day he rose from the dead, is often inserted the phrase, he descended into hell. You may have noticed that when the gentleman was speaking to the younger boy, he said it, although I noticed he said it very quickly, and then it was done. Tonight we're going to examine whether this phrase ought to be in the creed at all. Now, the reason why it's pertinent to us is twofold. One is because one of the key passages that people look to as defense for including 
the, um, the phrase is what we passed over last week. You may have noticed I said we would come back and look at verses 8 through 10. So let's look at Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. It says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, the second reason we're going to cover uh, this missing clause in the Apostles' Creed is because although this is not going to be a normal sermon in the sense that normally our sermons, uh, we take one passage and then we intend to show what the Holy Spirit is speaking through that passage so that we know better how to think or feel or believe differently so that we, you and I, can trust the promises of God for us in Christ. But tonight, I want to show us how to think biblically about a question that there are different opinions on. I want to look at a text and find out what it means because our job as pastors, your staff here at church, our job is to help you become independently dependent on the Word of God. And you cannot become independently dependent on the Word of God if you haven't learned how to think through, reason through uh, difficult questions. And so this is one. Because this is a major problem, because so much of what is passed off as theology or philosophy, especially if you see any of it on television, is just someone stating their opinion very forcefully. This is what you should believe. But whatever we say and whatever we allow to find a place in our ears, you and I must think through. So let's begin. I want to look at a few passages and then that will carry my argument through and hopefully uh, you'll understand why I and many other theologians believe that this phrase ought not to be in the Apostles' Creed. One of the passages that's often looked to is Acts chapter 2, verse 27. And in it, it says, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, the first, this is the first important verse because the key word in this whole discussion is this one here that the ESV correctly transliterates Hades. Transliterating is just a fancy word of saying what they did is instead of trying to translate it, they just spelled it out. The Greek in this uh, particular case is actually haden, but the N is replaced by an S because that's what we normally know it as. Now, this word, Hades, in Greek can be translated either grave or abyss, or it can be translated hell. It's, it can, depending on the context, it can be translated either way. Now, in the English Standard Version and the New American Standard Version, the translators just simply transliterated. They put it into English as it stands 
in the Greek. In the NIV, what they did is they correctly, in my opinion, translated in, in this case as the grave. So it would say, for you will not abandon my soul to the grave, is how the, ESV, or excuse me, the NIV stands. Now this is a sermon by the Apostle Peter. And in this sermon, he's quoting from Psalm 16.10. And the translation there of the Hebrew, the Hebrew in the Psalm 16.10, is the word Sheol. And in that passage, translated into English, both the ESV and the NASB correctly transliterate the word. While the NIV, again, correctly translates the word as the grave as opposed to hell. Now, again, both of these are fine translation decisions. What is significant and what is important for the argument that I'm presenting tonight is that the best modern translations, and I I would argue that these are three of the best English translations, either leave the passage without calling it hell or they directly translate it as the grave. Now, this is not true in translations, for example, the King James Version and the New King James, where they translate this as hell. Now, interestingly, this confusion about the translation of hell or grave is, as I said, the heart of the problem. And the very first time the Apostles' Creed was written in such a way that it included the clause, he descended into hell, was by a man named Rufinus, Now, I know you all are going to keep that in your memory for the rest of your life. Okay. But that was the guy's name. And uh, he, we have from him two examples of the Apostles' Creed. In one of these, he included the phrase, he descended into Hades. And in the other, that clause is completely missing. What we get from the rest of his writings, from this man Rufinus's writings, writing in the 4th century, is that he clearly understood the word Hades to be, in this particular case, the grave. So he did not evidently believe that Christ descended into hell, simply that he died and was buried and laid in a tomb. Now, the translation, or excuse me, excuse me, the controversy over whether it was uh, Hades meant the grave or whether it meant hell kind of fell asleep. And there was no more discussion about it until the 7th century. And in the 7th century, we begin to see once again, he descended into the grave or he descended into Hades back into the Apostles' Creed. Now, in this case, we're really not sure. Did these people mean by he descended into Hades Did they mean the grave or did they mean actually hell? Clearly by the year 750 when we have a a person writing out the Apostles' Creed, evidently by this time it did in fact mean he descended into hell. But what we have there is we have nearly 400 years of the existence of the Apostles' Creed, the first 400 years that we know of, in which it was clearly not included by many examples of it. It was included, but it was clearly thought to mean the grave as opposed to in hell. 
or there's a couple of examples where we're not sure. It could have meant one way or the other. Now, following that, now forwarding several hundred more years, after the Protestant Reformation, there's two confessions. And one was from the Lutheran Church, the Heidelberg Confession, and the other is from the Presbyterian Church, which is the Westminster Confession. And both of these confessions, both of these statements of what they believed the Bible teaches about theology, in both of these examples, the phrase, he descended into hell, exists. That's the way they state it. But when they clarify what they mean, both the Lutherans and the Presbyterians clearly mean that this is an example of God or excuse me, God the Son, Jesus, descending into the grave and not into hell. So, based upon at least one verse, Acts chapter 2, and the history, the beginning of the history of the Apostles' Creed, we have some very good evidence that the phrase either does not exist in the text or it's a misunderstanding and simply the uh, originators of the creed were trying to say that he descended into the grave. But that's not the only text that's used to support this idea. So let's look at the other three. And the next one is found Romans chapter 10, where it says, But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or, Who will descend into the abyss? Which is Hades in the Greek. That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The Word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the Word of faith that we proclaim. Again, this verse that we find in Romans is a quotation of an Old Testament passage. And in this case, that passage is Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 31. Now, in both cases, the argument that Moses first and then Paul later is making is that we, they're they're making a rhetorical point. And that point is we should not ask questions based upon unbelief. And that is actually, we need to go back one slide. Thank you. Um, We should not ask questions based on unbelief. In other words, this question that he's referring to is, why is God so inaccessible? Why can we not get to God so that we can understand what he's asking us? And Paul expands upon what Moses writes in Deuteronomy. And he says, but what does it say? The Word is near you. And remember, the Word, the Word of God is Jesus. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the Word of faith that we proclaim Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Listen, God is a big boy. He can handle your questions. God can handle your frustrations, your complaints. He can even handle when you're angry with Him. Although remember, the, the wrath of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires, James tells us. The problem that both Moses and Paul are pointing out is one of disbelief. 
It is one of not trusting the promises of God for you in Christ. So, you say, well, I want to see some of these promises in regards to God being near me. I'm so glad you asked about that. Let me show you two of them. One of them is found in Hebrews chapter 6, excuse me, 14 verse 16, where he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. The fact that the Lord of the universe calls his throne that of grace is amazing. Amen? That, let us draw near, and the the purpose of us drawing near is that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. But you say, well, that's fine for New Testament believers, but what about the Old Testament believers? I'm glad you asked that too, because we find in Jeremiah (coughs) 33.3, excuse me, Call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. When you and I ask questions of God, do so. Ask questions of God in such a way that you're desiring to know Him better so that you can love Him and trust Him more than you do now. The question is the difference between asking God a question and questioning God. There's a big difference between those two. Be wary of questions that may influence you to doubt God. And remember, the Bible is a book of answers. Go to the Bible and find Him. He will meet you there and He will share with you things that you have not known. Now those are two passages that are frequently looked at to defend the idea that Christ descended into hell. The best passage, the passage that comes closest to teaching something like Christ descending into hell is found in 1 Peter 3. Let's look at that. (coughs) For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now what does this passage teach? This passage teaches at least three things. And the first one is that Christ died for our sins. Amen? Not a difficult... We get that. His righteousness was given for our unrighteous so that we could be righteous. The second thing our passage teaches is that Christ literally died physically for us. Paul is being very, or Peter is being very specific here. He wasn't some ghost or some fake death. Christ actually died for you and me. And then the third thing that this passage at least is teaching us is that Christ was made alive. Oh, come on. There's got to be an amen for that. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to wait here until I get at least a couple. Now, specifically, Peter says that Jesus was made alive in the Spirit. Now, this is key, this is key information 
in the manner in which he was made alive. He was made alive in the Spirit. Or you might look at that as he was made alive by the Holy Spirit. And in this phrase, this in the Spirit phrase, is followed directly into his next line of thought. Now, part of the reason why I think the confusion happens with this particular verse is that how the Bible was versified, how the Bible was made into chapters and verses was not inspired by the Holy Spirit. In fact, it was done, the modern versification of the Bible was done by a man named Stephanus in the 16th century, 1,600 years after the Bible was written, 1,500 years. And so in the Spirit probably should have gone with verse 19. As you see how I have it laid out here, I think is better the way it was intended, or at least by my logic was intended to be. In the spirit in which, the spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, it is in the spirit that Jesus preached the good news. But to whom did he preach this good news. He preached it to the Spirit. I'm sorry, I'm not... (laughs) He preached it to the spirits in prison. And specifically, he clarifies as he continues in his argument that which spirits in prison he's talking about. He's talking about the ones in verse 20. Now we're ready. who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So there were these number of people, I don't know how many, of people were around when Noah was sitting there building his ark. And you know it took him so long to build this ark because part of what he was doing was preaching the righteousness of God. And he was doing so by the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ was preaching through Noah while he was building this ark so that they would have a witness, so that they would have an understanding of righteousness. Now, as it turns out, we find out that all these people who were listening to Noah preach the good news, died. And they died in their sins. And if they die in their sins, where do they go? They go into hell because they rejected the good news that became the good news of Jesus Christ. And we are going to love Larry Oppel very much because they are now in prison. Thank you very much, Larry. Now, if I were only looking at this passage, I would say, Greg, that's a pretty tenuous understanding. That's not really very clear in this passage. And I would say, okay, I agree. But I think there's at least two other passages in the books that Peter wrote that give evidence for this understanding. And the first one is 1 Peter 1.11. 
they were, these prophets, were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Peter is making clear here that the prophets of the Old Testament, of which Noah is one, were prophesying by the Spirit of Christ. That's very nearly the exact same words that Peter uses in our passage. But we also find in 2 Peter 2.5, if he did not spare, that's God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, a prophet, one who is speaking righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of um, the ungodly. Those who heard Noah's preaching, the preaching that he made through Christ's Spirit, those who heard this preaching were now the ungodly who are now, as Peter is writing, in fact, in prison. Furthermore, I, I won't go to these passages, but both Luke 16.26 and Hebrews 10.26 and 27 make it absolutely clear that there is no opportunity for repentance after physical death. So Jesus going to preach to people who are already dead and in hell isn't going to make any difference. At best, it would be God going down to them saying, neener, 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 which as a matter of fact, is what some people who think that he descended into hell is trying to communicate. I don't, I don't think that's true. It's far better to understand Peter's passage as an encouragement to continue preaching through the Spirit of Christ who is available to every single one of us exactly as he was available to Noah to those who are ungodly in the face of tremendous opposition as Noah, as Noah faced when, in fact, literally the whole world was against him. And it's having looked at these three passages, all of which I think is far better to understand they're speaking about something altogether different than a supposed descent of Christ into hell. Now, we come to our passage. And that's where we read in Ephesians 4, where it says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. As I said very briefly last week, I think it's best to understand these verses as communicating not the fact that Jesus went to hell following his death on the cross, but as a statement affirming that Jesus condescended. He deigned himself, to use Old English, to come down to earth so that he can lead a host of captives, which Paul picks up on that exact language in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, where he says, we are a host 
of captives that is paraded in triumph by Christ. And this is so that he could give the gifts of himself and gifted people that we talked about last week. The whole point of Ephesians chapter 4, as we said last week, is that God wants to give himself. And he wants to give himself through gifted people, you and me, those of us who trust the promises of God in Christ. And finally, there are three passages that seem to make absolutely clear that Christ did not go anywhere but straight to the Father following his physical death. In Luke 23, 43, he said to the thief on the cross, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Just a couple verses later, Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That doesn't sound to me like he's going into hell. And then lastly, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, making absolutely clear that Christ's death on the cross is absolutely sufficient for you and me is John chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This really is the clincher for me because it makes clear the fact that Christ paid the penalty for my sins and for all who would trust in him. He paid for them completely on the cross and he did not need to suffer, nor, more importantly for you and me, do we need to pay, do we need to suffer for our sins as well. So that's my case. I don't believe that the phrase, he descended into hell, is worth ought to be found in the Apostles' Creed. And in fact, more and more and more theologians, especially in the 20th century and today, are just doing away with it and and they are getting rid of it. Now, the logic you got today was from uh, a man named um, uh, Grudem, um, Wayne Grudem, in his Systematic Theology, if you care to read that. But I want to spend just a couple more minutes why this is important at all. And the first reason why I think this is important is because I'm going through the book of Ephesians. And this is one of those passages in the book of Ephesians that's not fun. And it's not fun because it's been made to say something that it doesn't in fact say. But it's my job and Pastor Benji's job and Pastor James's job uh, when we are going through a book to preach the fun passages as well as the ones that aren't quite so fun. So that's the primary reason for me taking a, a separate week to do this. But I want to give you just a couple more reasons why it's so important. And the first one is that, my friends, your sins were forgiven at the cross. Romans 8 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you. I needed that. And just a few verses later, in verse 32 of Romans chapter 8, it says, He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also, along with him, graciously, wonderfully, freely give us? All things. My friends, 
Christ paid the penalty on the cross. He died for us so that we don't have to worry. Comments like he descended into hell make out that Christ needed to do something other than die on the cross. Your sins and mine were destroyed at the cross. Nothing more was, is, or ever will be needed again. The second reason why I wanted to preach this is because at the cross, Jesus turned away the Father's wrath, not Satan's. Look with me at Romans chapter 3. It says, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now this, no, I'm sorry. There we go. Yeah, that other verse is a mistake. Um, Whom God put forward as a propitiation. A propitiation means a sacrifice that turns away wrath. It's like, you're, you're redirecting that wrath away from, in this case, me for my sins. And Christ is the one who redirected that wrath and he absorbed it himself. He drank the cup of the Father's wrath for the sins of all who would trust in him. And he did this because it's the Father's wrath that we must be afraid of not Satan's. And in the Middle Ages, back when this whole idea of he descended into hell became really popular, there was a heretical idea that said that Christ needed to pay Satan a bribe to let go his people. My friends, this is blasphemy. That's blasphemous to believe that. Christ did not pay Satan anything. If anything, he is going to be at the bottom of the pit of hell, and he is going to have even more wrath poured on him than the humans who will be there with him. But unfortunately, even today, there's this little bug in our ears that says Christ had to pay a bribe to Satan, and that's why supposedly he had to descend into hell. My friends, do not believe that. It is a lie. And the third thing is that, my friends, there is nothing left for us to do. Zephaniah 3.17. We've gone over this verse a dozen times in the last five years. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will rejoice over you with singing. He will quiet you with His love. And I just did it backwards, but you get the idea. My friends, because of the cross... As Pastor Benji has already said a number of times, you stood exposed at the cross. All the shame, all the guilt, all the condemnation was born for you. Now, if you are in Christ, there is nothing. There is nothing but love that the Father has for you. So don't get sidetracked by arguments that say that Christ died or Christ descended into hell. It's not true, and you should just get rid of it. And if I could say anything, I would get rid of it, but unfortunately, it's been around for longer than me. Praise Jesus. Thank you for suffering through that. And remember, when you run into questions that you don't know the answer to, go to God's Word 
and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you about it. He will. And if you need to, ask one of us and we'll say, I don't know and for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord Almighty, thank you for your word and thank you for godly men and women who have gone before us so that we can know what your word says. And Lord, we confess, we make mistakes and I don't know who originally put this in the Apostles' Creed, but Lord, we don't hold it against them. Instead, Lord, we look and glory at you because you are the one who saved our souls. Be gracious to us, Jesus. Help us, Lord Jesus, to know you and to love you better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.